The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning, I'm Erin McCabe, and I'm going to read today's scripture, which comes from Mark 10, 17 through 34. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to them, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, Aaron. Well, um, I don't know if you've heard this name before, um, but a man named Frank Abagnale Jr. I don't know if you remember that name or heard that name before. In the 1960s, uh, when he was between the ages of 15 and 21, he cashed over $2.5 million in fraudulent checks. Uh, You may have heard his name because There's a whole movie made about his memoirs called Catch Me If You Can with Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks. Great movie. And it seemed like in that movie, uh, and if you read about his memoirs, he took over, uh, and in the movie it shows only maybe three, three identities. He took over eight identities over the course of those years. And in the movie, you can see his memoirs kind of played out a little bit, but every time he seemed to be on the verge of being caught, uh, he could change his identity. So for instance, he was a pilot. He decided, I'm going to be a pilot. So he acted like he was a student trying to learn about uh, Pan Am at the time. I'm sure they really loved uh, this coming out afterwards, having this fake pilot but he acted, he pretended to be a student, to, a reporter to learn about Pan Am and went in and got a uniform and started riding on flights. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of miles. And then when it started to close in a little bit, he, he jumped there and decided, uh, maybe I'll be a, a, a lawyer or a doctor. And he just started moving on from identity to identity and he could do it. He was so slick, he could, he could really create this identity. 
But the thing in the movie that I really enjoyed uh, were a couple th- deeper threads. One was which, why is he doing this? What, what stirred it? And it was because his parents' divorce and really difficult breakup drove him to want to bring them together. He, want, he thought, if I go out and create this life, it's going to create such a successful world that it'll bring my parents back together. And an and even deeper thread than that was his desire for his approval from his father. He deeply wanted his father's approval and to get that and then also to help his dad to bring his mom home, it was gonna be the whole success story. He was gonna do it. And the way to do it was to create all these identities, to have this life. And there's this really powerful scene, and I'm not sure how this went down in real life, but in the movie where he sits, Frank and Abby Mail Jr.'s character sits with his father and his father's all washed up and he's kind of just down and out. And here he is dressed in this perfectly nice uniform, pilot's uniform, to sit before his dad and say, I've done it, I've done it. And he says, you've done it, son. That's great. But it's not gonna change a thing. And Leonardo DiCaprio's face just changes. And even the music changes. And he leaves and his dad starts like almost, almost insanely talking out loud like, where are you going next, son? What are you gonna be next? Almost like he knows he's doing something and his face changes in sadness. You know, this passage really hits on one of the deepest threads of our life. It hits on that question of where are you trying to seek approval? And ultimately, how are you trying to have approval before God? I mean, we're sitting in a church, you're watching online you know, the question, whether you're here and even if you've asking the question of uh, what is Christianity about, really the ultimate question is being asked in this passage when this man runs up to Jesus and says it, what must I do to inherit eternal life, right? I mean, wow, there it is. And of all questions to ask and of all people to have that question asked to Jesus himself, this is like the best setup ever. Right? I mean, here, here's it. How do I get to heaven? I'm, why not? I'll ask Jesus. You, you would think like if anywhere you are, and, and whether you're a Christian in this room or you'd say, I'm just exploring Christianity, you're coming back in the church, maybe you, you're, 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 you're wrestling with what it's been like to be a Christian, a Christian. Something happens though in this conversation that leaves this man walking away sad and the disciples completely obliterated and astonished and amazed. There's something about this that it's not just the simple, oh, here you go, just believe in me and do this. It's something deeper and it has to do with how we find approval, how we find ourselves accepted, brought in, how we are loved deeply. So we're gonna look at this in a couple ways, because I, I, this passage, mind you, I just, I'll just say it. Uh, this is a passage, the first sermon I ever preached was on this passage. Uh, way back when, in 1998, I was definitely not a, I was not ordained then, I was a youth director, and I can't imagine what I said then. I have a couple notes from then, and I'm like, oh. Um, But I will say that the thing about this passage that has always hooked me is that I see the mirror of myself right here. 
And it is the mirror that we all have of having the deepest approval that we've always wanted. We're gonna ask the question, what we, what, what we think really gives us approval, we're gonna look at that. And then we're gonna look at what, how we actually gain approval. What we think gives us approval, what really gives us approval, how we really find it. You know, when this man approaches Jesus, he does so in a really humble way. I mean, he kneels before him. <clears throat> he puts himself in a position of, <clears throat> um, let's say, hey, great teacher, good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He runs up and kneels. And, and this is a small enough town. They would know who this guy is. This isn't just some random person. This is somebody that they probably recognize. In, in putting all the gospels together, he was considered a rich young ruler. So being wealthy, he had notoriety. And being young and a ruler probably connected him more to the synagogue and even to the religious surroundings. So this, this guy was well known. And he was somebody who really wanted to ask Jesus this question. But Jesus does what really bugs me a lot when I read about Jesus. He doesn't just answer the question. He gives a, a, he gives a comment on the man's approach. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you would think, this is it. Here's a disciple, Jesus, he teed it up. Believe in me and follow. Knock it out of the park. No, he says, good, why do you call me good? Oh, man. Totally throws him off. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. He comments on goodness. He starts there. And I will say, if there's one overarching question, <clears throat> and especially in our current climate as well, is what is goodness? What does it mean to be good? I think we wrestle with that question culturally. You know, what is good? How do we speak good? How do we live good? And to have a question thrown back like this, it could throw a lot of people off. Maybe it throws you off. Maybe it could, it's distasteful. How does, how does Jesus have the audacity to say God, only God is good alone? Well, he's not saying there's no good in the world. He's commenting on something deeper. He's getting in the fact that we think that we are good enough. There was an article written by a guy named David Kaufman that I thought was really well done. And he draws out the fact that uh, we think that what's called common good or common grace, we sometimes skip that as Christians. And we think all it is, we just got to be saved. There's nothing good. If you're saved, you're good. If you're not, you're not. You know. Sometimes we miss that. What is the good in that? He says the first problem we have is what's called comic grace. He says we're good, at, we're good enough to save ourselves, that we utilize good to save ourselves. The second one is cosmic waste, that goodness outside salvation is an illusion. And I think some of us go to those two poles. Sometimes we're like, look, grace, how does it really matter? What do we do with good? Or maybe there is no, is there really good outside of salvation or being in, you know, being in heaven? What merits us? But he talks about this common grace, that there is goodness outside of salvation that is a gift to everyone. And what he's unpacking is this, is that oftentimes we overlook the bridge of what goodness is. That goodness, especially I've done this in a myriad of moments here in the city as a pastor, as well as, as a time as a chaplain at Vanderbilt, that there are moments there's a bridge of goodness to others who may or may not 
believe in Jesus at all. That we can strive for human dignity. We can care for people, right? Where it meets a problem is when we begin to look at our goodness as a merit rather than a bridge. Especially in an individualistic society where our merit of goodness is that. We want to see what's in my account. And we typically can put good in our account to make us think, have I Do I feel secure enough? But the question always will be, how good is good enough? Now, it doesn't dismiss that we should be doing good and we should be pursuing it. But the question is, do we use good as a merit to make ourselves feel better? I remember this line at the end of uh, Saving Private Ryan. I won't ruin the movie for you. If you haven't seen the movie... Uh, you need to. It's hard. It's rough. It's one of those movies I remember seeing, and I only needed to see once. I don't know if you've seen had those movies because it was so difficult to watch. I mean, it was great, but it was so hard. I'm like, I, I don't know if I need to do that again. But there's a moment at the end where uh, Private Ryan actually looks at his wife at one point as he is contemplating everything that's gone on throughout his past and what you saw during the movie, and he just looks at her, and his one question is, "Tell me, I'm a good man." Tell me I've earned it. Tell me I'm okay. And she just holds him as he just weeps. And I think that is just such the picture of us. Tell me I'm okay. Tell me I'm a good man. Tell me I'm a good woman. Tell me I've done it. And and we want to know where we stand. And this is what Jesus is drawing out here. He wants him to see not his merit of goodness. He wants him to see his standard of it. And he's trying to get him to see what his relationship is, is not to God, but to his own goodness. See, that's the heart of the matter. And that's where we get tripped up. And we talk about Christianity. Is we get tripped up thinking that, yes, we need to be out doing good things. And, we need, and I have even thoughts about how we can do that. But what we tend to do is look at it and say, am I good, God, am I good enough? That's even maybe during confession, your heart bends to that. and say, please, is this good enough? Tell me I'm good. Tell me I'm okay. And we move to the approval of that. Maybe we think, and we do this so subconsciously. I mean, there's just the, the grooves we run in because <clears throat> we're so used to them. But we, we equate growing as a Christian of being nicer. Someone who just gets nicer. I'm just nicer to people. That's not, that's not what, Je- what Jesus is trying to draw from this man and say, peel, peel back the first layer to say, your relationship is more to your goodness than it is to God. And we need to be honest about those things. And how we reflect that. You know, as workers, one of the things at Gotham, I don't know if you heard of Gotham before. You'll hear more about it. NIFW, National Institute of Faith and Work, has this incredible program called the Gotham Institute where you can go through an intensive program of how do you actually make sense of what it means to not live by merit, goodness, but to live it out. It means how you connect your faith and work. Hey, let's land the plane on that, right? And at the end of that program, they do a thing called the the a cultural renewal project where you have to actually see darkness in your current work environment and bring light into it practically. Even write a paper about it and do it. And I remember reading a number of these 
and some of the ones that what, what I saw as a pattern, particularly of some of the big ones, is, is where the, the reflection of goodness comes through. And that's what it is. That goodness is to be a reflection. Why does God say this? Uh, what does John say this? Let them see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven, not you, right? But that these cultural renewal projects where they would institute something or they'd see something of darkness and over and over they would institute it and they'd pre- present it to their boss or someone in, uh, on their board and they would say, this is a great project. What's your stake in this? What do you have in this? Why do you want to do this? There's a door. Not that it's a merit of this is, I just see good, but I want it to be a reflection. I see what? Let them see your good deeds and praise whom? Father in heaven. But the next, right after this, Jesus not just says, no one's good but God alone, but then he goes to, okay, here's my wheelhouse, right? You know the commandments? You know the commandments. And he throws out the commandments. And don't you know, especially for this man, and everyone listening, they're like, okay, now we're getting down to this, all right? This is the good stuff. He asks him that, and this guy says, and at first you might read it and go, what? He says, I've kept all these since I was a boy. And you and I, I don't know if you read that, and at first you're kind of like, whoa, seriously? But really, he's being sincere. So much so, this is why it says, I love these details of this actual account. It says that Jesus looked at him and loved him, verse 21, right after he says, all these I've kept from my youth. Why does Jesus look at him with love? Because this man is sincere, He is really saying, I have kept all these from my youth. And you know what? It is possible to do that. It's possible to keep these things. I remember when I was young and going to a friend of mine who was Jewish and going to a bat mitzvah. Uh, Have you heard those terms bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah? But what that is, and maybe you've been to one or heard one, or maybe you've come out of a Jewish tradition, it actually means the, the language bat mitzvah or bar mitzvah means son or daughter of the commands of the commandments. And so the commandment, for him to bring up the commandments, everyone around was like, yes, this is the crux of relationship, especially with God. This is what it means, eternal life. Here we are, let's go. And you even see this argument over and over. In fact, after our series in Mark, we're gonna actually look at two, we're gonna look at the life of Moses and Exodus, and we're gonna do a summer series on the 10 commandments. And I can't wait. Because over and over in those, Jesus is being accused of not adhering to the commandments. And what does he do? He brings them right up. Just just in case anybody's thinking these aren't important, he brings them right up. But here's why he does. Notice the ones he brings up. If you count, you go, "There's there's not 10 here. See, the 10 commandments are divided into two parts. The first four and then the next six, Okay. The first four really speak to God's relationship with man. And the second six really deal with man's relationship with man. And if you notice, which are the ones that Jesus draws out for this man? The second six. Because if Jesus was to begin with the first one, and what he's drawing out, the first one is, you shall have no other gods before me. See, Here's the one that's so fascinating that what he's doing is saying, yeah, yes, your goodness, but also your religion. 
we can pursue the Ten Commandments. We can say we've kept them all. But the commandments aren't meant to be the ones we keep and say, I've made it. Here's my approval. Here's another identity that I can put on. They're actually meant to expose. In fact, Romans 7 verses 9 and 10, Paul says this, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death for me. See, if we really look at the Ten Commandments and we begin at the first one, then we realize how much of the other ones we are missing. I remember when I was younger, I think I was in college, and I was sitting in church in Dallas, Texas, And my senior pastor, Skip Ryan, was preaching. And I loved his preaching. And and, and think about it, I was later on in college, maybe a junior, senior. And I remember him giving a sermon, and what he talked about was, you know what, Jesus doesn't just die for your sin. He dies for your self-righteousness. And that blew me away. I know for many of you, you may be like, Okay, yeah, but think about it for a moment. Jesus doesn't just die for all, that's what we typically think. He dies for all the ways that we are bad. And that's what we think confession is. We're gonna come to confession, we're gonna confess all the things that are bad about us and that he forgives us for. But really, it's not just that. Jesus dies for all the ways that we think we are good. And it blew me away. It totally shifted my heart. It did exactly what Martin Luther even says about this. He says, he says, failure to believe that God accepts us fully in Christ. He says, to look to something else for our salvation is a failure to even keep the first commandment. Anything. What's this man doing? He's keeping his relationship, but his relationship is to what? The law. It's not to God. He's finding his approval there. Another layer pulled back from him. And how many of us do that? How many of us think, and I know I can. I'll be the first to tell you it is the hardest thing to preach a sermon and to walk away and to trust that God does, not in myself, in everything, yes, preparation, all the things I'm supposed to do. But at the end of the day, how does this actually work? God doesn't work. And it's so easy to put my trust in my commit in the way that I can follow. We can act as though we're following God and not have a relationship with him at all. So just as much as standing in a, in a garage doesn't make you a car, we can sit in church and think we're okay and approve because we're here. And I wanna encourage you, let God's forgiveness over not just your sin, but your self-righteousness blow you away because it left this man walking away sad. Maybe we need to walk away sad. Feel it deeply because the next layer was where he really found his love, his possessions. It's what he accumulated. Jesus goes, okay, great. He looked at him and loved him. Again, he wasn't thinking this guy was just arrogant. He really brought and received his sincerity. And then he said, you lack one thing. 
You sell all you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. And disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. What does he do? He pulls back the layer of what he really loves, his possessions. It's not just the approval of what he thinks of himself and goodness. It's not just the approval of what he can do religiously of attaching himself to a moral code. He goes to the things that's most pragmatic, what he has, his wealth. And look, wealth in the, 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 the ancient times was seen as something that you, if you had a lot of it, you were blessed. You were seen as, as someone who's done life right. And he didn't fraud, look, notice even his mass accumulation of wealth isn't that he stepped on other people to get to it. It says he kept the commandment of not fraudulently cheating anybody. He's earned it. He's grown it. It's his. But it's what he loves. Because what does wealth do? And we think of the same thing today. It gives us access, right? Wealth gives us access, the right vacations, the right schools, the right neighborhoods. Why is it so hard to move inside of Nashville? Because to have access into the city. Why do so many of us have to live outside of the city? Just to work in the city. Because it's ridiculously expensive. And sometimes it feels like we're just working to live. Because possessions ask for submission. I love what Jerry Seinfeld says about this, about our phones. He says, you know, your phone, you yourself is really the vehicle for your phone. He says, you are really submitting to that thing you have in your pocket. It's a computer. It's running your life. Where do I go next? Who wants to talk to me? And you're just the vehicle that gets it around. Oh, he's right. Think about how we submit to those things. Jesus is pulling back the final layer and saying, where is your true submission? How do we have true approval? When he uncovers all these layers, this this man walks away sad. And Jesus says how difficult it will be. He says it twice even. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his word. And he said, and to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. You know, the word for sorrowful and he walked away sad isn't just like he was like, man, it's not what I was going for. It actually is a, a Greek word meaning a storm. It meant a torrential storm began building in his life and in his mind. And his face actually showed the language of not just disappointment, but somber brooding. Because this was an absolute paradigm shift. And what was it? Grace. Grace. See, he was stripped away so much that he couldn't do anything to earn it. And that is what? Grace. You know, even the word for amazement when it gets to the disciples is even the same word for terrified because they're watching this guy that they've known and they go, if this guy can't do it, how can we? Because it's grace. And grace is an unbelievable paradigm shift. 
Grace should leave us staggering. It should leave us looking at everything in our life and say, I can't, I can't do this, I can't do that. I can't, all my life I've wanted to put my shoulder down and think that I can do it and do it maybe in a Christianly way. But what Jesus is saying is no. To get into the kingdom, how difficult, how difficult it is, is by grace. And it completely messes with your whole paradigm. Every way, and it should. And if it doesn't, you need to ask, why doesn't it move me? Why isn't it such a tectonic shift in my life where it makes everything else move? I love uh, the story that Megan, my wife, told me when she was younger, when she came in and she had her favorite TV show. And she came in and she turned on the TV and it was already playing and she just started melting (laughs) she said as a kid saying seeing her her tv program was already on it wait it did it it started without me and now we're like oh just record it dvr this is the days when you could not dvr there was no tivo remember those there's none of that and it just obliterated her idea of wait a minute i this program doesn't wait for me One of my favorite movies, uh, it seems like I'm throwing out a lot of movies this morning. Ferris Bueller, old movie. The whole movie is wrapped around a guy named Ferris and everything around him, save Ferris. Ferris Bueller, like the whole world, Chicago, the city of Chicago bends its will to this guy named Ferris. And I, I always watch it, I was like, that is so awesome. That is what I want in my life as a high schooler. That is what I want. But that's all we think it is. And what grace does is say, you're not in the middle and yet you are more loved than you think you would be in the middle. I want to hear this. There's a, a moment when he says this in the second time around. Jesus looked in verse 23 and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. You could even read in terrified. They were just like slack John. But then it says, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. This is the only and first place in the gospel of Mark where Jesus calls his disciples children. It's the first place because he recognizes to them. What is he wanting them to see? That everything else you want to give you approval, to love you back, cannot love you back like I can. And he tells a group of grown men who have left everything, who aren't immature in terms of life stage or anything else. He tells a group of of grown men, children. Why? Because he he wants to speak to them in a way that they know how they are gathered in and loved, how they are approved, and how they can cease trying to be approved in any other way. Stop trying to put on so many identities. We can stop, we can rest in the grace. That's what grace is. Grace is is us knowing that he loves us all the time. I'm constantly trying to tell my boys, and I look, when I say this, it's not that I'm a perfect father, but I say this because I need them to know this because I need to know this. That at the end of the day, when I look at my my boys and and, and I'm, I'm putting one of them to sleep and I say, hey, why does daddy love you today? 
And now they've gotten kind of used to the answer, but you know, at first they used to be like, oh man, I, I did really well in school today, or I'm, I don't know, I love playing with you on the trampoline. No, it's because you're mine. I love you because you're mine. And that's what grace is. There's nothing else we can be loved for other than we are his children and embraced by his grace. That's why he says, what is impossible for man is possible for God. To enter the kingdom of God, none of us can do it. We can't do it. Only in him. That's what this table is about. This table right here means this. It means that when Jesus said that no one is good but God alone, that he's trying to help us understand that when he comes to this table, that he's addressing every evil thing, and that includes us. That the only one good is God alone. He's actually saying the one standing in front of you is God. And he didn't recognize it. And yet how amazing that what this table means is that we have a God who is perfect in goodness in every way. And many of you may look at him and say, he's a good teacher. But how many good teachers do you know that are perfectly good go to a cross to take up every evil in the entire universe? Jesus himself died on the cross, it says, as a curse. Anyone who dies on a tr- hanging on a tree is cursed. What is it getting at? It's saying that those who are lawbreakers deserve to die this way. Jesus in no way ever broke the law, but he took up every way that when we drink from this cup, we recognize he took up every way that we broke it. And so that it says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, it says, he, he, who's become, he became poor so that we might be made rich. He who had everything, everything, his wealth was indescribable made himself poor, poorer than any of us in this room, where he could walk around and say, I have no place to lay my head. I have no place to sleep. So that you and I could be the wealthiest we would ever know. That is grace. You get to come drink grace today. You get to come drink and have access that no wealth can give you, have approval that no goodness or morals or religiosity can give you. Don't come to this table, please. Please don't come and take this if you think it gives you approval to God. Only come and taste it because he has given you his approval. It is by pure grace that you are saved in him. Let's stand together.